Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. We'll get to the recording of this Sunday's message in just a moment, but first I want to ask, are you a listener who does not attend in person on Sundays, but who would be interested in meeting with other St. Paul's listeners in your area for a small group? Right now we have a couple people connected to St. Paul's who live in the New Haven shoreline area who would like to start an in-person small group you know, to meet for fellowship and discussion of the previous week's message. And so if you happen to be from the New Haven shoreline area and you would be interested in that, please email me to let me know. Ryan at stpaulswired.org. That's stpaulswired.org. And if you're not in that area, but you're in another area and you'd be interested in meeting with other listeners there, Email me to let me know what area you're from, and maybe we can put something together. In fact, even if you're not interested in a small group, but you're just a regular listener who doesn't attend in person, we'd love to hear from you just to know that you're out there, because uh, we don't really know how many people listen to this. So if you're willing, we'd love to hear from you. And as always, we'd love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. So let me once again... Uh, welcome our UConn students back. It's great to see you guys here again. Uh, hope your semester is off to a good start. So, uh, as Keith said, we are finishing up our series in 1 John this morning. We've been uh, in 1 John for the last two months or so. We're wrapping things up today, and uh, we're picking up right where we left off last week, which is 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Uh, so if you want to follow along in your own Bible, I encourage you to turn there. 1 John 5.13 Lord, we thank you so much for this morning, for the chance to uh, learn from the scriptures together. And we just pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive whatever it is that you want to teach us. Help us to be open to learn right now and to attend to you. And all God's people said, Amen. So the final words of 1 John. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under control, the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. 
He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So if you've been here over the last few months, hopefully you remember that this was written in the wake of a church split. A group of people had left the community because they disagreed with John the Apostle's teaching. And we don't know exactly what these cessationists were teaching, the people who left the church. Um, but as we've gone throughout this letter, we can kind of infer the sort of things that they were saying. So what were the cessationists teaching? Well, they were saying things like, you don't need God's forgiveness. Uh, they were saying that how we live doesn't matter to God. That's irrelevant. Uh, they denied that Jesus had come in the flesh, that he was actually fully human. And they didn't think that Jesus had died on the cross for our sins. You might remember that last week we talked about how they believed that Jesus came by water, meaning they believed that he had a baptism ministry, but they didn't believe that he had come by blood, meaning they didn't believe that he had actually offered his life and suffered and died uh, on the cross to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So John wrote this letter in the wake of the church split in order to encourage those who had stayed and remind them of what is true. But in this passage, we get a little more insight into John's motivation for writing this whole thing. Did you catch what he said? He said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants the people that he's writing to to know that they have eternal life, to be assured of that. Several years ago, I knew a guy who converted to Christianity. Pretty remarkable story, uh, his conversion. And uh, he ended up joining a denomination that's quite different from what I grew up in, quite different from a church like this. I won't say what denomination it was, but... It's what you might call a more high church denomination. Uh, definitely not the kind of church where this, you're ever going to see a speaker in jeans, which I'm not wearing today, but that does occasionally happen. Right? Um, so anyway, my friend, shortly after he, he converted, he, he would say that one of the problems that he had with other denominations is that they teach that you can be confident of your salvation. And he thought that that was very presumptuous to be confident that you would be saved. He thought that was kind of arrogant and prideful. And, uh, you know, we would have discussions about this and little debates and that sort of thing. And uh, one day, I went to visit his church. And after the service, I ended up going out to dinner with him and some of his friends and the leader of the church. And... Uh, my friend turned to the church leader and he addressed him, you know, very respectfully, because that's what you do in, in this uh, denomination, You're very, you know, high church denomination. And he said, um, I've told my friend Ryan that in our tradition, we believe that you cannot know that you are saved in this life. And the leader's eyes got a little big. <laughs> and without any qualification, he goes, yes, you can. <laughs> And uh, I think my friend's perspective started to shift that night. He wasn't going to hear it from me, you know, but uh, he, he was more able to hear it from this man. 
And John would certainly say the same thing that that church leader said. Yes, you can. You can be confident. You can be assured. In fact, he would say, that's why I wrote this letter. That's why I wrote 1 John, because I want to help people have assurance of eternal life. But even though John would disagree with my friend, they would share some things in common. Because the reason my friend was so uncomfortable with people being so confident that they're saved is because he was worried about people having false reassurance. Right? He didn't want people to think that they could just live in sin unrepentantly, not caring at all about how God would want them to live and expect to inherit eternal life. He didn't want people to think that they could just not believe in Jesus or walk away from Jesus and have this confidence of eternal life. And John would share that same concern, right? And notice, he doesn't say that he's writing to assure everyone that they have eternal life, right? He says, I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, right? So he's specifically writing to those who have faith in Jesus. As we looked at in the passage last week, John says, who is it that overcomes the world? In other words, who is it that experiences eternal life and has this confidence of salvation? Well, it's only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. But John also doesn't want people thinking that if they just assent to the right ideas, if they just hold the right ideas in their head, then somehow, well, now they can be sure that they have eternal life. Remember what else John said last week and has emphasized throughout the letter. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. So John would agree with my friend's concerns, and yet he does think assurance of eternal life is possible. And not only is it possible, he wants people to have it, but for the right reasons. So what are the right reasons? Well, if we look back over the course of this letter, John keeps emphasizing three means of assurance over and over again, right? We can be assured of eternal life because we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins, because we love one another, and because the love God has for us is perfect. And those three means of assurance are all supposed to work together. They are they are connected to each other, right? Number three, the love of God is perfect. Well, how do we know that the love of God is perfect? Well, we know because it's revealed through Jesus, right? Because Jesus shows us the lengths that God is willing to go to in order to reconcile us to himself, that he's willing to be, take on flesh and, and suffer and die for us, right? So how do you know the love of God is perfect? Number three, by believing number one, right? And then if you're truly believing that the love God has for you is perfect and you are receiving that, then that is going to have the effect of growing love for others within your own heart. And if it doesn't, then you might not really believe in Jesus and the perfect love of God because the perfect of love of God has a transforming effect on our souls. So all three forms of assurance are connected. They're meant to work together. Now, John repeats something in this passage that he said in another passage. It's a little scary sounding. He says, anyone born of God does not continue to sin. 
Again, notice, John does not want us to feel assurance of eternal life if we, quote, continue to sin. But then how can any of us have assurance? Right? Because John said earlier that if we say we have no sin, we make God out to be a liar. So one of the sermons in this series was just specifically on this problem. How do we resolve that? So if you missed that, you can go back and listen to it. It's called Do Christians Sin? Um, but just to summarize quickly the answer to that, John is not saying that we have to be perfect in order to have assurance of salvation. Again, if we had to be perfect, there is no way that any of us would have assurance of salvation. But he is saying that if we truly know God, if we have been born of him, then our lives are not going to be characterized by sin. And what, what can help us to make sense of this is to recognize what the essence of sin is. If you just use that word sin in the abstract, all kinds of things could come to mind. But recognize the essence of sin as the rejection of love, as refusing to live in love, right? What did Jesus say are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So when you replace that word sin with something that has to do with living in the absence of love, it fits pretty well, right? We know that anyone born of God does not continue to live in bitterness and unforgiveness and hatred and violence and selfishness. Of course not. Because the perfect love of God is transforming. Are we going to be perfect? Are we going to love absolutely perfectly? Well, no, but our lives are not going to be characterized by hatred, violence, selfishness, retribution, those kinds of things. So John wants us to have assurance of eternal life, but he wants us to have it for the right reasons. Because of the perfect love of God revealed to us through Jesus Christ, which as we receive it, it transforms us into people of love. Now, John then moves from this topic of assurance to the topic of prayer. And those two things are connected because if we don't feel assurance in our relationship with God, we're less likely to pray. We're less likely to talk to God or ask him for anything, right? But if we have assurance, we're more, we're more confident. We talk to God. And we trust that our prayers are going to have more impact. John wants us to know that our prayers can have impact. And he says something that, uh, you know, might be a little surprising. He says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now notice, okay, we've got to be careful here. John does not say that we will receive anything we ask for. But he does say that when we ask according to God's will, we receive what we ask for. Now, you might say, well, isn't that just kind of a superfluous thing to say, right? Because isn't God's will going to happen no matter what? So what's the point in praying? Well, maybe that's the wrong way of thinking about it. Maybe, this is what I think, God has set things up in such a way that sometimes God's will will not be done unless we're asking for it. You see, because God doesn't just want passive observers and robots, right? From the very beginning in the book of Genesis, he has created human beings to be partners with him in creation. 
right? In the beginning of Genesis, it says that human beings are made in the image of God, which means we have been uniquely made to represent God, to reflect the character of God in the world. And part of that, the author of Genesis says, is, um, excuse me, just lost my train of thought. Uh, Part of that is ruling, ruling, right? Which means taking part in ordering and and protecting God's creation. So uh, from the very beginning, God has wanted human beings to be partners in creation, to be participants, right? And so it would make sense that he would set things up in such a way that he will not act in certain ways unless we are praying, unless we are participating, because that is part of what God's will is, to have acting and and willing participants in us, right? Reflecting that we are made in the image of God and ruling over creation as he first mandated to us. So, here's the big idea here with prayer. Think of prayer this way. You cannot use prayer to get God to do things that God doesn't want to do. That doesn't work. But God has set things up such that prayer is a way that we increase the likelihood of God's will being done here and now. It is a way that we invite heaven to come down to earth, right? As we pray in the Lord's Prayer, that things on earth would be as they are in heaven. We get to participate in that through prayer. So we should ask ourselves, are our prayers in line with God's will? Are they the kind of prayers that reflect the things that Jesus would want? And one of the ways that we can kind of uh, assess that is by asking, well, are these the kind of prayers that are motivated by love? Love for God and love for neighbor. Or are they just selfish prayers? The more that our prayers are in line with the will of God, the more they will have power. And then John takes the subject of prayer and he applies it to another subject. And I think this is actually a very practical one. Which is, when we see somebody committing a sin. Have you ever seen somebody commit a sin? I see it happen quite a bit, actually. What are you supposed to do when that happens? John says... If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. Now, of course, if you're anything like me, the big question is, well, what is the sin that leads to death, and why does he not say we should pray about that? But hold on. Okay, before we get to that, let's talk about what we can be sure of. John says that our default when we see somebody in sin is to pray for them. Not gossip about them, not judge them, not go tell them they're wrong. Pray for them. That's supposed to be the default. Now, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody here, but I do think something that often happens is that we are inclined to pray for the things we should act on and to confront on the things that we're supposed to pray about. So you might remember that John said a couple weeks ago 
If anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Right? So John is not the kind of person who just says, whatever's going on, I'll just pray about it. Right? He says, if somebody is in need, you shouldn't say, I'll pray about it. You should do something. Right? But when it comes to somebody who's sinning, the default should be, I will talk to God about it. But often we want to do the reverse, right? Somebody's in need and we say, well, I'll pray about it. If somebody's in sin, I got to tell them they're wrong, right? But the default should be the reverse. Now, John does seem to say that when someone is involved in a certain kind of sin, the sin that leads to death, that we probably shouldn't pray for them. Right? He says, uh, there is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, I, I have to admit, I struggled with this passage. I really did. And I thought, well, why would John tell us not to pray for someone? I mean, even somebody who is caught up in the worst kind of sin, wouldn't they be more needing prayer than anybody else, right? And that leads us back to the question, well, what is the sin that leads to death? And most commentators will say something like, well, it's the refusal to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, and then, obviously, coupled with that is the refusal to love your neighbor as yourself, the refusal to live in love. And uh, I, I think that makes sense. But it still raises the question, well, why would John be saying not to pray about that, right? If somebody doesn't believe in Jesus, my default is to pray that they will come to faith, that they'll repent, right? Okay, well, I thought about this, and I'm going to offer what I think, and I'm just warning you, I didn't read it in any commentaries. So you have to just take this for what it's worth, okay? But I thought... What if John's purpose here is not really to say, oh, it's wrong to pray for these people, but his purpose is to say there are some sins that are harmful enough in their effects that we shouldn't just say, I'll just pray about it. There are some cases where the sin leads to death, either literal death or great harm, and in those cases, you can't just say, I'll pray about it. You have to do something. You have to act. You have to confront Right? Especially situations of abuse and that sort of thing. I mean, my goodness, right? If a Christian hears about like a child being abused or something and just says, oh, I'm just going to pray about that, right? That's incredibly harmful, right? Because that abuse is a sin that leads to death and something should be done. You know, <clears throat> I remember when I was growing up, I used to hear people say things like, all sin is the same. None of it is any better or any worse in God's eyes. And um, I don't think that's true. Now, it is true that all sin is wrong. And it is true that all sin puts us in need of God's grace. And we should take all sin seriously, yes. But some sins are worse than others because they cause greater harm to people. All wrongdoing is sin. But not all sin leads to death, right? 
Now, don't misunderstand me, okay? Jesus is clear that we should be dealing with sin when it's in the seed form, right? Before it becomes this monstrous, terrible, death-causing thing. We should take it seriously from the start, right? So we should always take our own sin very seriously. But when it comes to the sin of others, we need to recognize that confrontation is only appropriate when harm is being caused, and that is clear, right? That's what I think John is saying. So you can, you can take that, think about it, pray about it. You know, I, I just think we, we should never say things like, the kid who stole a pack of gum is just as worthy of condemnation as Hitler. That offends every God-given moral intuition that we have, right? And I have heard things like that throughout, throughout my life, now and then. And uh, I, I think we, we, we need to avoid those kinds of sayings. Okay. Now let's finish by looking at those last words. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So we end with the warning. It's kind of abrupt ending to the letter, right? There's no goodbye or anything. Just, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So why that final warning? Why would John end on that? Well, think of it this way. What is an idol? An idol is a representation of God, right? So John ends with the warning, stay away from false representations of God. John wants us to remember that the only way we can know who God truly is, is through Jesus. He is the true representation of God. As he says, the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, so that we may know God. In other words, the way that we know God, the way that we understand who he is, is through Jesus Christ. If we look to anything else to show us who God truly is, that image is going to come up short. And it will be an idol. Because only Jesus can show us. Right? Because only Jesus can show us the extent of God's perfect love that he would be willing to take on human flesh, suffer, and die on a cross while saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Right? The only way that we can really know the true representation of God is through that, through Jesus. So, I'll end with this exhortation. Do not settle for anything less than the true representation of God. As the author of Hebrews wrote, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So don't settle for anything less than that. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this letter. 
And um, even though there are parts of it that are hard to understand and it's challenging in places, Lord, we pray that we would take from it exactly what uh, John intended, which is that we would feel assurance of eternal life, that we would know your perfect love that casts out fear. Lord, help us. Help us to do that. And Lord, help us, Lord, to, uh, to know and have the discernment to know when it is right to confront someone over sin and when to just pray. Uh, Lord, give us that wisdom. Help us to take from this book exactly the things you want us to remember. Seal them on our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.